Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. How are you feeling? Oh man, I tell you, it's uh, it's been a long road trip. We are in Raleigh, North Carolina. Nope, we're, we're in Durham. We're in Durham, North Carolina, and uh, we're in our hotel room. Haggis is settling in nicely. The road trip has been pretty uneventful. I don't want to like gross you guys out or anything, but this dog is the best travel dog. I have never seen a dog travel as well as Haggis has, he hasn't whimpered once. No, like in the car, he's chill, he's sleeping, it's no big deal. And then I put him out, he pees, he poops, he gets back, he snuggles down. And then we get in the hotel room and he's like, all right, feed me and let's go to bed. We were driving through New York. Actually, Kat was driving through New York. Uh, we, we got through New York City and uh, with n- no, no problems. No problems. Uneventful. And then we crossed over into New Jersey and immediately there was a huge tractor trailer truck on the side of the road, totally engulfed in flames. I have to say, I mean, it sounds like a fun story, but it actually made me like incredibly anxious and you could feel the heat from the fire. You could. It was it was at first I didn't know that it was a tractor trailer truck, so I was super jacked up because I was like, Oh my gosh, it's someone's family car. I hope everyone got out, blah blah blah. But it was a tractor trailer truck, so it was fine. But still, it was very upsetting. We we drove through a cloud of black smoke and as we got to the other side there was the sign that said, Welcome to the garden state. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Jersey. Mm, the juxtaposition here is weird. Speaking of that, uh, here in Raleigh, we're staying at a hotel. We're in Durham. In Durham. We're staying in uh, a hotel which is in the historic tobacco district. And right outside, there's a beautiful park in the historic tobacco district. And the sign says, uh, thank you for not smoking. (laughs) (laughs) We just had dinner and it was my first experience with a certain 
chain Mexican restaurant um, that, by the way, the boss of was on Undercover Boss, and so that's why I wanted to eat there. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was really good. It was. I really enjoyed that buffalo queso. So if you're ready, I've, I've got a story for you. Yes, please. Today we're going to learn about um, the true yet terrifying story of Cannibal Island. Cannibals? Yes, in the spring of 1933, Joseph Stalin was presented with a very interesting kind of idea for a new type of gulag. The is head that, of is that with like the tomatoes? No, and that's the... goulash. That's a different thing entirely. Oh. It's it's funny because that's on my mind. I, when I, when I hear the word gulag, I I picture goulash for some reason. Goulash? Yeah. We always said goulash. Really? Yeah. Well, I said goulashes. Those are goloshes. Joseph Stalin. <laughs> his secret service and also the head of his uh, secret gulag system came up with this idea that uh, Stalin and the government should resettle two million of who they described as political undesirables to a settlement in Siberia that would ultimately become self-sufficient. The idea was settlers would be brought to the area of untouched land and make it agriculturally productive. And this would help Russia because they were going through a bit of a famine, mm-hmm. but it would also sustain the settlers. It's the the thing that I've said a hundred times. Why don't they take all these types of people and put them in a, you know. Yeah, in a, yeah. In a Siberian camp. <laughs> okay, I've never said that. Oh, <laughs> I guess that was me. Mostly it was just jerks and people who don't know how to use their blinker. So in May of 1933, 6,000 political dissidents, petty criminals, as well as just peasants were loaded onto trains. The ultimate destination was the isolated Western Siberian island of Nazino. Now, this was going to be a two-year plan. Within two years, they were targeting self-sufficiency. But it only took 13 weeks, however, before the whole project failed and failed spectacularly. Wow. The 6,000 settlers were not only abandoned in this hostile Siberian wilderness, but they uh, they didn't give them anything they needed. They were under-resourced, under-prepared. It didn't take long before violence and disease began to take its toll. I have a question. Yeah. Was that their intention? To kill the people off? Yeah. No, no, it was, they wanted, to, uh, they wanted these criminals in their mind uh, to produce food that would help Mother Russia during the, uh, during the famine. And, and not to cost them anything in the process. I mean, was that what they said they wanted? <laughs> well, I don't know if they had under... Well, I'm sure they didn't give a shit, you know. <laughs> <laughs> hey, if this works, it works. But if it don't, meh. Eh. Gulags were a big part of the prison system in the Soviet Union under Joseph Stalin. Uh, what? Stalin. Stalin. I said Stalin. No, you did not. You said Stalin. That's just my main accent. I know it is. But I figured you'd want me to tell you. Starling. Stalin. Uh, basically, they were concentration camps, but they were designed for serious criminals, at least in the mind of uh, Soviet government, as well as political dissidents. Many of the prisoners were innocent of any crime. Oh. They just happened to disagree with the Soviet system. So oh, off you went. In late Uh, 1932, the Soviet government issued a brand new type of identification document. They were called internal passports. And uh, these passports were denied to, quote, 
persons not engaged in industrial or other socially useful work from towns. If you had a passport, then you were acknowledged as a citizen in good standing and you were allowed to move about freely from town to town. But if you did not have one, Mm -hmm. you were trapped where you were and you would probably end up being rounded up and sent to a gulag. Passes were also denied to people considered an anti of an antisocial element. Uh, but what is that exactly? This new type of gulag was presented as uh, as the answer. The solution, you might say. Yes. Yeah. Instead of it just being a camp, it would be more of a labor village. Uh, they'd stick them out here in the inhospitable outskirts of the Soviet Union, and uh, they would be guarded so no one would escape, and um, they would become self-supporting communities. The ultimate idea was to set up these settlements as cheaply as they could and try to get as much food out of it as they possibly can. And as you pointed out, they really didn't care what the expense of the labor was. If they died, they died. So it feels very concentration campy. Yeah. In May of 1933, the first batch of, quote, anti-socials were rounded up and sent to the island. Many were peasant farmers. At least they had some idea of how to scratch a living out of the land. Right. But many were just urban citizens that were picked up without papers. These were the ones that were chosen to go first. Uh, they were loaded on four river barges, and they were kept below deck during the entire journey. And even though there were thousands of these deportees, there were only two camp commanders and 50 guards to take care of them all. They were unexperienced, they were untrained, they were newly recruited and grossly unprepared. Well, yeah, how would poor city folk know how to grow food for the entirety of Russia? Yeah. By the time the barges reached Nazino Island on May 18th, 27 people had already died. Oh, jeez. As they got off the barges, snow was falling. There were no shelters ready for them. There were none, and there was nothing they could use to build shelters. Grow us some beets in the snow. They uh, soon discovered that they hadn't been given any tools or even cooking utensils. Yeah, this this was not a farm. And no food. During their voyage, they had been given 200 grams of bread a day apiece. Now they were left with uh, nothing on the island but 20 tons of flour. And for the first four days, the guards didn't even distribute it. So as you can imagine, um, things got uh, got pretty tense there. Yeah. Riots broke out. The uh, guards moved the, the flour to the mainland so they couldn't get to it. And they tried to disperse it in a more orderly way, but every time they brought food on the island, riots would break out. So in the first 24 hours on the island, another 295 people died. Holy shit. It wasn't very long after the settlers arrived that the government finally rejected the idea of this type of a labor settlement. But nevertheless, on the 27th of May, another 1,200 deportees were dumped on the island. Apparently, they were already in the system and on their way. By now, things have completely broken down. Death, disease, chaos. They had been given 20 tons of flour, but nothing to cook it with and no supplies. So basically what they did in desperation is they just took the flour down to this little river and mixed it with uh, river water and uh, got dysentery, which more people died. (sighs) Now, this island was about two miles long, but only 630 yards wide. Those who survived the initial first couple of days really had two choices, if they were healthy enough. The first option, of course, was to escape. 
Those who weren't too weak were able to uh, construct makeshift floating devices, not really rafts or boats because there wasn't much on that island, and they attempted to flee by river. Many drowned when their rafts came apart midstream. (sighs) If they survived the river and got back to the island, the guards would hunt them down like animals for sport. Hundreds of corpses washed up on the shore below the island. The few who did make it across the river were just left to their own devices because it was known that the elements were so harsh and these people were so weak and ill-prepared to survive that they were as good as dead. The second option was to stay on the island and survive at any cost, whatever it took. And it, it was getting right down to it. As the already limited supply of flour began to dwindle, murder became far more frequent. The dissidents, they would form gangs and roam the island. The guards were unable to control them. Uh, They quickly turned into murderous rampages. And by the end of the first week, the starving settlers had resorted to cannibalism. It was first discovered by health officials when they visited the area, um, and they observed five corpses with body parts that were missing. In 1989, during Glasnost, testimony was taken during the investigation. And of course, Glasnost in the Soviet Union, it was the uh, policy or practice of more open consultative government and wider dissemination of, of in- information. It was, it was uh, initiated by Mikhail Gorbachev in 1985. Okay. And so they were investigating this, but it took them until 1989. Sure. One of the most frightening accounts came from an elderly woman. In 1933, she was just 13 years old, and she had visited Nanzio with her family because every year they would go there to collect poplar bark. Usually the island was empty, but she said on this occasion they found, quote, people everywhere. They were doing all sorts of the most inhumane things. The woman described the situation. There was a camp guard there who had fallen in love with a young prisoner. His name was Kostia. Costia loved this young woman so much, and he protected her, and he he gave her food as much as he could. He tried to keep her safe. And one day he was called away to other business, and he asked a fellow guard to look after his love. But he didn't do that. While Costia was absent, the woman recalled, quote, people caught the girl. They tied her to a poplar tree. They cut off her breasts and her muscles, anything that they could eat, everything, everything. They were hungry. They had to eat. When the guard came back, she was still alive, tied to the tree. Well, that's no. He tried to save her, but she had lost too much blood. It was early June when the authorities dissolved the settlement on Nanzio Island. In less than one month on the island, approximately 4,000 people died. The 2,856 deportees who survived were moved to other settlements up the river. The Soviet government held a a brief inquiry into the events. Some of the guards were imprisoned, but other than that, the authorities buried the whole matter. But in 1988, with the advent of Glasnost, the details became publicly available for the first time. And that's when the Soviet population began to find out. Except for the people in the region around the island, they never forgot. These terrible events in the summer of 1933 were burned into their brains. To them, Nazino Island will always be known as Cannibal Island. That is one place that's not on my bucket list to visit. Thank you. No, thank you. Can you imagine the unrest that probably still exists there in the spirit world? Oh, you mean paranormal unrest? Yes. 
Well, we were watching that thing about the ghosts of tsunami um, the other Ooh, night on the unsolved mysteries. Yeah, and we were talking about where well, I was, and you were just nodding your head politely. But I was saying that it's not uncommon for these types of events to happen in places where there was mass loss of life quickly and unexpectedly. Mm. And this maybe wasn't unexpected, but man, it was quick. Four thousand people in less than a month. That's unreal. I've never heard of that. It's terrible. It. It truly is. And now, that thing in the middle. If you are 20 inches away from someone in a dark room while they have a candle lit behind them, their face will become distorted and appear demonic. According to Italian psychologist Giovanni Caputo, this is because the brain can't bind all the facial elements into a single image while in impaired light. Did you know that Kat and Jethro learned how to produce this podcast by watching a YouTube video? R really? You could tell? This is The Box of Oddities. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids, and they live about 3,000 miles away, and my daughter is expecting a child, and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life, Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura Frames and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code Oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com and use code Oddities at checkout, and you will save. Thanks, Aura Frames, for bringing my family a little bit closer. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some Fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? <sighs> Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? 
I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. Shane sent us an email. Hey gang, had to share this box effect. I listened to the box of oddities a lot in the car. Uh, Today I was running some errands and uh, guess where I stop just before box 352 started? My local donation center. I got turned away attempting to donate a metal loft bed frame. <laughs> I got in the car and what do I hear but Jethro complaining about the murder couch. <laughs> it's not. It, it was just a little saucy. Yeah. It's a sauce couch. Shane says, good luck on the move. Thanks, Shane. And now you have a story for me. Oh, yes. What do you have, my love? There's a saying in Chinese folklore and it says... All martial arts under heaven originated from Shaolin. Shaolin Kung Fu, also called Shaolin Washu or Shaolin Quan, is one of the oldest, largest, and most famous styles of Kung Fu. It combines uh, philosophy, martial arts, and it was originated and developed in the Shaolin Temple. In China, in 1849... There was a baby born, and this baby was covered in hair. The baby had hypertrichosis, which we've talked about before. Mm -hmm. It's uh, often called like werewolf syndrome. You know, Jojo the dog-faced boy Mm -hmm. had hypertrichosis. So this baby's parents, uh, who we don't know who the parents were, but whoever they were, uh, were probably very superstitious and probably did not love the idea of their child being covered in hair. And they didn't have time to shave him every day. Right. Well, they might have believed not just that he was going to be time-consuming, mm. uh, what with all the hair shaving, right. uh, but also he might have been a demon. Oh. You know, it wasn't a great time for babies. A lot of times in China during this period, because there was widespread famine, there was a lot of infanticide. And Mm. especially if you had a child that was different, that couldn't assist your family. You were less of an asset, more of a liability. Exactly. So this baby's parents probably believed him to be possessed by some sort of demon, abandoned the infant in a forest near a river to die. 
Nearby was the Fukian Shaolin Temple, and a passing monk discovered the child and took him back to the temple. The baby was nursed back to health. Given the child's appearance, the monks knew that the likelihood that he would be adopted by a family Mm. outside of the temple was low. So they decided that they would keep the child, and they named him... Jojo the dog face boy? No. Tai Jin. There was a time in early China that the only members of society who were allowed an education were the royal family and those within the priesthood. And so the Shaolin monks decided to study the animals in a scientific fashion and to discover, document, and adapt to humans how each animal moves, attacked, and defended itself, which I think is a really cool way to loophole yourself into education. Well, we study animals. Mm-hmm. So now that's we're we're monks and this is our thing. This is what we do. Some monks studied tigers, others observed all species of birds, others watched snakes, praying mantis and monkeys. And slowly they began to adapt these movements to the human body and to pass on what they had learned about these animals by way of their movements. I love the idea of paying close attention to nature and learning from that. Like I I remember when I found out that uh, Velcro was inspired by burdocks. (laughs) Makes a lot of sense. It does. Though I would a thousand times prefer to be attacked by Velcro. (laughs) Yeah, it's easier to get out of your hair. Mm. So Tai Jin, being raised in this temple, very infrequently left. Um, Due to his condition, he was much more comfortable surrounded by the monks who were raising him. And so he spent most of his time doing chores or training. This is according to Shaolin Do. He was not only raised with the monk's ideals in mind, he was also not limited in his studies to one master. Now, most monks at Shaolin were evaluated and placed with a single master for their martial arts education. But Tai Jin was given access to all the masters of the temple. Now, I think of this kind of like... um, in some European schools, now I don't know if they used if they still do this, but I know they used to do this. You know, as you got through middle school and into high school, they discovered kind of what you were good at and kind of put you in focused education so that you could mm-hmm. start your training for jobs and such early. I kind of think of it this way. Like, hey, you've got some tiger like movements. Let's uh yeah, let's get you on into this one. Vocational education. Yeah. Right? Is that what they call it? I guess it rhymes, so it must be right. (laughs) Yeah, if it rhymes, it's right. So Tai Jin had this advantage over most of the monks, and he was really treated pretty well because he was obsessed with learning. And so the monks who were teaching loved that he loved to learn, and therefore he became everyone's favorite. Oh, that's great. And and the fact that he didn't want to go anywhere, Mm. he was just there all the time, allowed him to access all of these different methods from all of the different monks. This is great. He's like a superhero. He is like a superhero. And the masters were just so jazzed about how enthusiastic he was that they were like, yeah, that's right. And how about this? Right? He was a sponge and he mastered every technique that was shown to him. Tai Jin became the first to master over 200 different empty hand systems and over 140 weapon systems. Wow. Wow. He became the first to master all skills of the seven Shaolin temples. 
Usually, the ten grand masters of the temple each would learn one-tenth of the Shaolin art. But Tai Jin was able to learn all of it. Which I'm sure the other masters were like, well, I mean, yeah, if I had the opportunity to master all of them. But, I mean, I wasn't there all the time. You know, I wasn't everyone's (laughs) favorite hairy boy. (laughs) Tai Jin's specialty was called Dim Mok, um, or Death Touch. And it is a secret type of knowledge that includes techniques that attack pressure points. So you use less force because you know where to touch people to kill them. It's sometimes called immediate or delayed death. So you could, in theory, uh, touch someone on certain pressure points and then an hour later they die. I want to learn how to do this. Yeah. No, no, I don't. No. Some I... people say that it's not a real thing, but uh, Tai Jin was a master of it. So, I mean, the thing is, how do you practice that? That's <laughs> my you, question. How do you know if you've got it right? Right. You know, because if you do get it right, then somebody's dead. Mm. So Tai Jin became known as Sukong Tai Jin. Sukong simply means grand master. And the grand master was in charge of the monk's physical progress and the mastery of the martial arts by the warrior monks. Now, there are a lot of people who debate whether all of the stories about Tai Jin are true. There's a very blurry line between the story of the man and then the legend of this grand master. So sometimes things are a little exaggerated. We don't know all the facts. It happened a long time ago, too. So things get muddly, like a delicious cilantro. Or a savory goulash. Goulash? I've I've heard heard it both ways. ways. But one story that's told of Grandmaster Tai Jin is that he had a meeting with the masters of the surrounding temples. I like to think of this as like when all the Captain Planet kids get together <laughs> and then they their powers combine. Sure, yeah, yeah. To become Captain Planet. Yeah. I think of the masters of the surrounding temples as a really localized He-Man cartoon. Well, who are the other? I mean, there's Skeletor, but like, who are the other Grandmasters? I mean, there's He-Man, but I mean, oh, grandmasters of the universe. I see what you're doing there. No. I ruined it. (laughs) Did I not ruin it? Masters of the local temples is what you said. And I thought, geez, that's nowhere near as impressive as masters of the universe. Oh, I see. It's just a local version. Well, you really ruined it for me that I don't want to finish the episode now. Grandmaster Taijin entered the room where the men were seated and they all raised from their chairs and bowed to him, you know, politely, as mm-hmm. you do. Um, and he didn't bow back. And, I mean, at first, you'd be like, excuse me, right? But instead, what he did was pick up a knife from the table, and he thrust it into the darkened rafters of the meeting hall. And a would-be assassin tumbled from the darkness with the knife embedded in his heart. That's cool. Yeah. So the other masters were like, whoa, whoa, whoa. What just happened? Because they didn't, I mean, this guy was above them the whole time. What right. now? And, and this was a banquet they were having and, and, the, and the assassin fell in like the salad bar. Well, I don't think that was, that's, how that's I, really not the, let's, in, in my mind, let's that's, not get sidetracked. That's how the sneeze screen was invented. So the other masters <laughs> questioned Grandmaster Tai Jin and they were like, how did you know that that guy was up there? And he said... I walked in 
and there were 12 men in front of me, but I could hear 13 breaths. Oh, my God. I love this. What? This guy. What are you talking about even? Earth, wind, water. Right? Amen. All right. We're getting our 80s cartoons confused. Actually, Captain Planet was probably 90s. Early 90s. Yeah. 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 But either way, he's our hero. Yeah, how did that work out for him? He's had since the early 90s. That's enough. He's doing the best he can, okay? Apparently, it's not good enough, <sighs> Captain Planet. We're going to demote you to Lieutenant Planet. <laughs> I'm overheated. <laughs> Su Kong Taijin died in 1928 at the age of 79, but his legend lives on. He is also known as the werewolf kung fu master which is the most <laughs> rad name i can think of that is the coolest ever and the fact that it's I'm, much cooler than lieutenant planet and the fact that there's been no movies made about him or at least i don't know about them um blows my mind and haggis's yeah haggis shaking is all his jacked up. shaking his head in disbelief amazing story thank you werewolf kung fu guy yes i love it so our next stop will be Savannah or Savannah. Savannah. I think it's Savannah. I've heard it both ways. Uh, Savannah, Georgia. And uh, the next time that you hear an episode from us, it'll be recorded in or from Orlando. Yeah, we're staying in an Airbnb for a couple of weeks, so you're going to hear a lot of stuff from there. <laughs> We've been updating our journey on uh, Patreon. If you're not a patron yet, uh, you can do so by going to theboxofoddities.com and click on the Support Us tab. Or you can go to Patreon. That works, too. Yeah, either way, whatever's easier for you. But we've been, uh, we've been posting pictures and comments and things as our journey unfolds on Patreon. We'll see you next time. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. And fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the Box of Oddities belongs to you and its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those to whom I report to beseech you for assistance. We ask but one thing of you, to provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, that is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2021. All rights reserved. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts. love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well look no further and join me, Katie Charlwood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. 
on Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.